I wouldn't want to relive being a refugee and losing everything we owned. I wouldn't want to relive being in the Pentagon uh, where 186 people lost their lives. But I'm thankful that I lived through them once because I learned so much from each. Welcome to First Person, where this week's guest is the former ambassador to Kenya, Scott Gratian. Ambassador Gratian is also a retired Air Force general and a former MK, a missionary kid who grew up in Africa. I'm Wayne Shepard, and you'll meet our guest shortly. I hope you'll take a few moments to visit us online, where you'll find not only more about today's guest, but also be able to explore a long list of past guests and hear their stories through our interviews. At firstpersoninterview.com, you'll find the audio archive and a schedule of guests coming up in the weeks ahead. Ambassador Scott Gratian has served his country admirably in the Air Force as well as in the Diplomatic Corps. Before becoming ambassador to Kenya, he served as the president's special envoy to Sudan at a critical time. He's told his story in the book Flight Path, Son of Africa to Warrior Diplomat. On a recent visit from Kenya, where he is now a businessman, Ambassador Gratian took the time to visit with me in his mother's home and talk about his life. Well, Ambassador, thank you for the opportunity to sit down together. Is there any other person that you're aware of that grew up as an MK in a country where he returned as ambassador of the United States to that country? I'm not aware of any. Maybe there is, but it's a pretty unique circumstance to grow up in a country. And then, actually, I flew with the Kenya Air Force, and I had other work there. So I got to know the people very well, and I got to know the culture very well. And then to have the opportunity to come back and represent America in that country— I don't know if anybody else has had that opportunity, but I sure enjoyed it. It was like a coming home almost, wasn't it? It was. It was really an unbelievable assignment. Uh, of course, my wife, her parents were missionaries. They went out to Africa in 1953, and uh, I guess maybe in Af- 1952, and then she was born there in 1953. Okay. And uh, so she also had that same affinity and knowledge of Africa, the language, and uh, so for us both, it was just a tremendous opportunity. You've known your wife since childhood. Tell that story. I found that interesting as I read your book and that so many other stories uh, from your life. But talk about how you met your wife. Do you remember the first time? Uh, no. Because you were probably, what, a couple I was of years only old, three right? years old right. when, when we first met. But let me just say this. Our parents went to school together. They both got master's degrees here in the States before they went out to Africa. So our parents knew each other. So in 1954, Judy was only a year old, uh, her parents trekked down to Congo to be with us. And I was told, I don't remember this, but my mom said Judy used to throw things out of her playpen, and by then I could walk. I was two years older than she was. And uh, and I would throw things back in her playpen. And I guess it was love at first sight, because uh, we continued on, and 20 years later, uh, we got married in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And uh, that was 42 years ago, and it was four kids ago, seven grandchildren ago. Wow. So we've had a wonderful time together, and it all started in 1954 in Congo. Well, there was a sense in which you were in part of the same family, too, because her parents died young. That's right. Her dad died in 1958, and her mom decided to stay in Africa. A brave single parent, I yes, might add, right. to stay in Congo and raise her two girls. Uh, and she was in Kenya. And, and a teacher at Rift Valley Academy, and also she taught a little bit in, in the local high schools. Uh, but the bottom line is, yeah, she was killed also early in a car accident. And my parents became 
the guardian of Judy and her sister. So when we got married, my dad walked her down the aisle, <laughs> gave her away to me. I became my own brother-in-law. That's probably as unique as becoming an ambassador That's in the amazing. country you grew up I in. I love that story. I really do. And you mentioned your dad and your, your mom. Your dad's with the Lord now. I knew your dad uh, fairly well and loved him. What a great man. He was, you know, and he lived his faith. Uh, he was a very wise man. You know, a lot of us, we're lucky if we just get knowledge. And then... If we can put the knowledge together to get judgment, that's even better. Hmm. But some of us, maybe not me, but my dad <laughs> for sure, take it to the next level, which is wisdom. Yeah, he was and, one of and, those guys. And when yep. you can have wisdom, uh, in other words, your judgment is is more right than wrong, and you have the facts, he was very well read, and, and he loved to think, and he loved to discuss. You know, you couldn't be with my dad for more than know, five minutes. <laughs> I know. He, he loved to talk about anything and everything, including theology. Yeah, but, uh, and he really was well-grounded in all of it. He was loved the pursuit of intellectual uh, information and, and thoughts, and, and he read everything from Time Magazine, Christianity Today, you name it, uh, <laughs> Dad had it, yeah. and uh, loved to read. Well, you've had such a distinguished career. Uh, let's let's talk about the Air Force. Uh, you are a, a general, retired yes. U.S. Air Force. When did that career start? You were a, a pilot, right? I was a private pilot. I got my private pilot's license in in college, and then uh, I had an experience. You know, Vietnam was raging, and and I had uh, a pretty bad draft number. <laughs> you <laughs> remember the that. same age. I, I had a, a good draft number. Yours wasn't so good. No. Huh? And, and then, so the threat of going to Vietnam in the ground, uh, I said, well, maybe I should really join the Air Force and, and, <laughs> and fly. So it all worked out that I was able to join the Air Force. I got a pilot training slot and went down to Columbus, Mississippi and learned how to fly. And then I was selected as an instructor pilot in the T-38. It's a supersonic trainer. And so I spent my first couple of years doing that in Mississippi. Then I moved into fighters, and I flew the F-5, uh, the F-16, uh, and the F-15. And then I flew some other airplanes uh, for a total of about 5,000 hours. Wow, combat included? Yeah, 2,000 hours as an instructor pilot. But then, I don't know if lucky or unlucky, but I was chosen to fly combat missions uh, quite a bit. And I did seven years in combat, uh, enforcing no-fly zones. In fact, I end up flying more combat missions supporting the no-fly zones than any other American over there, 274 mm. combat missions. Uh, and uh, fortunately, survived all those. Had to have some scary moments, though. I had some scary moments, and, and it, was, it was tough. But my biggest scary moment came when I was a F-5 instructor pilot in Phoenix, Arizona. And, and if you don't mind, I'll just tell a little bit about it. Sure. Uh, because it was a life-changing event for me. Uh, I'd taken off in the afternoon. Uh, I was flying one single-seat fighter, and my friend was flying the other. He was getting ready for an instrument ride. So my job was to make sure that the air was clear and we didn't bump into anybody. Uh, so the ride was just gorgeous. Sun was setting behind us as we were heading towards San Antonio. And big, puffy, it looked like cotton candy in the distance. And uh, it looked beautiful. Didn't realize that... Within 30 minutes, I would almost lose my life. Mm. As we descended down to the clouds, the sun was set, and it was dark, and rain was just streaking the canopy, and I could barely see the other airplane. Uh, looking out, I knew there was a big hunk of metal out there, and, <laughs> and I had to fly. Normally, we fly three feet wingtip clearance, and I had to even be closer. Three it, feet? Yeah, that's our normal formation. Wow. For, if you're outside of that, you're probably not going to be able to see through the clouds and see your buddy. <laughs> 
And if you're closer than that, of course, uh, it becomes dangerous to see, and you might even hit. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you don't want to do that. But I was tucked in as close as I could safely tuck in, flying over with just uh, some lights on the wing and a light on the tail. And I knew we were going to turn at about 4,000 feet, and all of a sudden the airplane disappeared. So I rolled out and, and moved away from the airplane, and I looked back at my own gauges, and I was on my back, oh. 60 degrees nose low, diving toward the ground. I saw the lights of the suburbs of San Antonio coming up to me, and I frantically tried to recover the airplane, and a miracle happened that night. I, mm. I really should have probably been a fireball, but the airplane recovered between a farmhouse and a row of trees that I could actually see. That's mm. how close I was to the ground. And, and I got back up in the clouds, and... It's sort of like being locked in a closet without any kind of visual clues. My head was spinning, and I finally was able to convince myself that I was straight and level 300 knots. Wow. And, and that night when I closed my eyes, all I could see is uh, the ground rushing up, the altimeter screaming down, the airspeed increasing, and death approaching. And I realized that if I had died that night, I would have left just a room full of plaques. I'd been very lucky. I'd been junior officer of the year, instructor pilot of the year, and I had a lot of accolades. But I really wouldn't have not left very much. And and the significance of the dash between my birth date and death date would not have been very significant. Sure, you know, my wife would have missed me and my son and the squadron would have been sad, but but there's really nothing that I had done. So I looked for opportunities outside of myself uh to to make a difference. And I changed my priorities from being self centered. Uh, to try to help the world. And I went to Uganda under Idi Amin and did a bunch of other things. But the reality is, is that, that that experience early in my career as an F-5 instructor pilot uh, probably changed the course of my life and made me look at other opportunities to serve with servant leadership and, and to help people out. You know, we have so much and so much to share. Yeah. And uh, so that was a big event. We can talk a little bit more about my time in Uganda. If well, like. I, I, I want to follow up just a little bit because you, you had to see the hand of the Lord in that, right? I did. A miracle happened that night. In fact, as if you take a look at where I started and where I ended up, I should have been about 200 feet in the ground. So as I understand it, your instrument saved your life. You, when you felt like you, you didn't know where you were disoriented. That's right. So we're, we're taught to, to fly off our instruments, even though the seat of our pants indications and our head is spinning uh, we're taught to to just do what you need to do and to overcome the those physical erroneous sensations that, that mock at you, actually, uh, and, and fly the instruments. Uh, but yes, I, I there's been several times that I owe my life. You know, they say you get nine lives if you're a cat. Uh, I don't know how much you get as a human, but I'm pretty much near the end. I've had a lot of opportunities. But the good Lord hasn't uh, been finished with me yet, so yeah. I keep on going. Well, be safe. Thank you. <laughs> be safe. Thank you. Um, how, how and when did Africa come back into focus for you? Well, Africa, after this near miss, I take a, took a look at the world, where I could contribute. There was an earthquake in Managua and some other things that I, I thought about helping out. But then I heard about Idi Amin, and I heard about the situation in Uganda. Aspirin costs $5 a piece. There was no running water. Electricity was intermittent as best. And, and I decided to just take off from the Air Force a couple months and go out to Uganda. Bought an airplane ticket, decided it was too risky for my wife to be there, and landed at Entebbe, and there were, my tools were missing, the windows were all shot out of the terminal building, there was a 707 with shrapnel through it all. And, you went there to serve, and... Yeah, and I didn't think I was going to make it back <laughs> out again. But you know, I learned so much from that experience. 
every meal, which was just the bananas, called matoke bananas, uh, was given to me with a little penicillin vial and a leaf or a flower that people went out of their way to make me feel welcome. Mm. And, and I learned so much. I would go on Sunday up to the hill, to Nyamarimbi Cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral, Nyamarimbi Hill. And, and these people who had had churches burned down around them, who, who suffered uh, a lot of persecution, uh, one person told me that you could throw rice into the state research bureau where where they were held uh, in confinement, and it would cook because of the heat oh. and the sweat and the oh. humidity. And and I'd go up to the hill, and they were talking about forgiveness, hmm. and they were talking about forgetting the past and looking forward and being thankful for the blessings that God had given them in life itself. I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand it. Later, I came to realize what forgiveness is all about. But at the time. It was a foreign concept to me, and I couldn't understand when you had been so painfully abused and persecuted that you could think about forgiveness. But it was a great thing. I learned about servant leadership. I was in a cornfield after the soldiers were coming through. We went up to Hyde, Dr. Masaba and me. Dr. Masaba had a practice in Germany, and he came back to Uganda in this situation where I was one of only 13 white folks in the, in, in the capital there. And it was really dangerous. And he left his practice in Germany and came back. And I said, Dr. Masaba, why did you come back? And he said, if I didn't come back, who would take care of my people? Oh. This is what servant leadership is yeah. about, putting others before yourself and making a difference in people's lives. And I tell you, I'll never forget Dr. Masaba. I'll never forget what he sacrificed to help his people. And that's, that's something that, that, was very meaningful to me. And while I haven't always done it, it's something that I've tried to do. Ambassador Gratian's story also is a powerful testimony of forgiveness, and we'll get to that part of the story next. This is Ed Cannon, president of the Far East Broadcasting Company. Thanks for listening to today's first-person interview. FEBC believes in the power of story, God's story, at work in the life of people who follow Christ. As we broadcast programs both into large population areas and remote villages of Asia, we hear amazing stories of how God touches hearts with His Word. If you'd like to hear more of those testimonies, please visit firstpersoninterview.com and click on the FEBC banner. My guest is Ambassador Scott Gratian. Scott is a retired Air Force general who has served his country so well, both in the military and uh, through the State Department. And we'll get to that part of the story in a moment, uh, Scott. But we've got you in Africa, and we're going to have to skip an awful lot here. It's in your book, and I really urge our listeners to get a copy of Flight Path. But hit some of the highlights of, of how God used you on the continent there. Well, I've had a lot of experiences. I'm currently out there uh, trying to put jobs in the country. There's 1.1 billion people in Africa, and half of them, 500 million, are under the age of 18. Mm. And so it's a huge, big responsibility to try to work on social economic issues to create jobs. But, but I had a wonderful experience. I, I flew with the Kenya Air Force, uh, and, and I've had other experiences in Africa where, where I've just fallen in love with the people, uh, with the continent, and want to make a difference there. But, but there were other situations that I had in the Air Force where that really changed my life also. I was in Dahran as a commander of, of the group there, enforcing the no-fly zone when terrorists uh, attacked our barracks and killed 19 people. Yeah. Eight of them worked directly for me. Mm. Uh, again, it was wonderful to see Americans working together and responding to that situation. We can be very proud of our American servicemen who sacrificed so much and their families too. 
and our first responders that, that do a tremendous job for us every day. And I really saw it firsthand. I was also in the Pentagon, a few hundred yards away from where that airplane hit on 9-11. You were there that day. Yeah, right there. And, and, and I saw again uh, the courageous people and the first responders doing a, a tremendous job. So I've been very fortunate to, to witness the good and the bad. Uh, but but I'm I'm very proud of of America, hmm. Americans, and and we have a great great country. And when you live overseas and you come back to America, you realize how wonderful it is to be an American and to live in this great country. And so it was a wonderful opportunity when I had uh, opportunity to transition into being a diplomat. And I took uh, then Senator Obama to Africa, and. Uh, it was a, a strange experience. I mean, I was a Republican, pretty conservative group in the military, a general officer, as you said. And, and I went to Africa with a, with a fellow who was a Democratic community organizer. But, you know, just sitting in the airplane for hours on end in the front, that was just two of us in the front cabin, uh, we, we developed a, a deep friendship. And, and uh, then he asked me to work on his campaign. Yeah. Again, there's so much more that our time doesn't allow us to talk about, but let's let's skip right to your ambassadorship in Kenya. Started out on such a positive note. It was. As I said, it was a dream job. I loved it. And, and you know, when I was in the military, I had a lot of diplomatic posts. I was responsible for regional affairs and sec- security assistance, and a lot of things where I, I, I had a lot of opportunities to operate as a diplomat within the Yeah, I didn't the realize that until I read your book, that military people serve in that capacity, but you did. Yes, and but I would say that probably the lesson learned of my ambassadorship, I was probably too much of a warrior <laughs> in this <laughs> diplomatic assignment. And I really want to get things done. You know, when, when you give a general a job... Uh, <laughs> he doesn't they, have any choice, does no, he? No, <laughs> they, they, they go out and move out, you know, and if you get 67% of the information, you make a decision and you get the job done. Well, I found out that the mentality uh, is a little bit different than the State <laughs> Department. And, uh, you know, you try to get a lot of meetings to get 100% consensus, and then you write a report. And different when all culture, that's done, huh? it's a totally different culture. And, and I did, and I made some mistakes by trying to probably move too fast to fix security. And, and it was, we needed to fix it, but I, I probably uh, implemented things a little bit fast. And so, so there was a contentious end to that. Yeah, uh, there was. Uh, I, I, there were some allegations that were leveled against me. and Unfairly? Uh, very unfairly. In fact, as I was exonerated totally three months after this, I was fired after three days. Oh. So basically, a report went up. Uh, I was, received a call that I had to move on. And I said, don't I get a chance to tell my side of the story? And the answer was no. Mm-hmm. And so I moved on and it ripped my heart out. That'd be so hard. Oh, I tell you what, it was, it was very hard. And then especially that three months later, after all the investigations about emails and all these other allegations turned out to be totally false and I was totally exonerated. Uh, but I was left without a job. My reputation was trashed. The internet was filled with these allegations that were egregiously untrue and and the falsehoods really hurt me because integrity was so important to me. Well, I imagine it hurt you and it hurt your wife and family as well. Right. But you know, the thing that we learned is that when things get taken away from you, whether it's when we evacuated and became a refugee out of Congo or or when these situations happen, you're left with your faith, Mm -hmm. you're left with your family, you're left with your real true friends and then the last thing I had to get over was this concept of forgiveness. Oh. You know, I was angry. I was bitter. 
I was frustrated. I was depressed. And I couldn't understand how Americans could say things that were totally false about me. And it really hurt me. Mm. And, and I really struggled until I finally remembered this prayer about that St. Francis of Assisi had written. And, and I always remember the first line, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And, and it goes on. And, and you had been a peace negotiator. Yeah, and so yeah. I had always glommed <laughs> on to that first part. And then I read, where there is injury, pardon. And then it goes on to say, in pardoning, we are pardoned. (laughs) And then the Lord's Prayer, it talks about forgiveness. Forgive us this day. And and then I recognize that Jesus forgave and all this forgiveness stuff. And then I remember the Ugandans, that they had been talking about forgiveness. and, And they probably endured a lot more persecution than I had. And then I realized that, it's not like when you're a child and when your sister comes in and says, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you, and everything's nice again. Sometimes nobody says they're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> nobody comes and says... And even when they do, it doesn't change the circumstances. That's the, right. the relationship does change. Even though there's scars, I finally was able to say, I forgive you. Hmm. And at that point, it didn't matter what they did, why they did it. And I moved from being bitter to being better. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell you, it's so freeing when you realize that nobody can wreck your day except you. It's how you react to situation that makes the difference. And, and when I finally realized that it was my attitude toward these things that was causing me to have physical and mental health <laughs> issues that was making me feel at constantly nagging and the continuous bitterness, when I finally forgave and realized that I can move ahead and it just didn't matter anymore. That the future became brighter and I could understand what the Ugandan people had done. And I understood how they could move forward and forgetting the past and moving ahead. Even though you have scars, even though it's painful, forgiveness is such a critical element in healing. So looking back over that whole episode, are you thankful it happened? I mean, nobody wanted that to happen, right? You know, I wouldn't want to relive those 30 seconds over San Antonio. I wouldn't want to relive being a refugee and losing everything we owned in 1964. I wouldn't want to relive being in the Pentagon uh, where 186 people lost their lives that day. And all these experiences, I wouldn't want to relive, but I'm thankful that I lived through them once because I learned so much from each. And, And unfortunately, we have to live through some of these things. And, and for me, I'm grateful that they were learning times, uh, that they were turning points, and they were experiences that made me better. If you would like to read more about the life story of Ambassador Scott Gratian, his book is titled Flight Path, Son of Africa to Warrior Diplomat. We'll place a link to his book on our webpage, firstpersoninterview.com. I also invite you to visit us on Facebook. Our page is found at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. And there you can leave comments about what you've heard today or about any other recent interview. As always, I'd like to thank the Far East Broadcasting Company for making this program possible through their support. FEBC believes in the power of the gospel to change people's lives and loves to have stories told of followers of Christ making a difference for the kingdom of God. To hear some of FEBC's own stories of listeners whose lives are being changed by Christ, please visit firstpersoninterview.com and click on the banner for FEBC firstpersoninterview.com. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to First Person. First Person.